morning again, and as Grace said, uh, welcome to Grace Church, the Medina East Campus. Uh, really thankful to see all of you here today in the auditorium at our 1115 service. Can I get a woot woot for the 1115 service? And uh, thank you also to those of you who are joining in online via live stream. We're going to give you a second to give yourself a woot woot in your living room. And with that being said, uh, just... Allow me a second to introduce myself. I know Grace already mentioned who I am, but my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And specifically, uh, my role here, I had the privilege of overseeing this aspect of our mission statement at Grace known as Live It. So if you know, uh, our mission statement is know it, live it, give it away. And so it, in each of those three kind of lanes of our mission, is the story of Jesus. It is the gospel. It is the good news about everything that Jesus came to do and the life that he came to offer people. And so uh, I had this awesome privilege in Live It. Basically, what we want to do with this idea of Live It is get us all to see that Jesus desires that life to be worked out in and through those who would follow him by faith in some real tangible ways. That we would, as Christ followers, increasingly reflect who he is and his life through us before a watching world. And so, um, oddly enough, that is a kind of a great way to connect our hearts and our minds a little bit as to what we have been doing in this series that we've been in for about two or three months now since Easter. This series that, of course, you can see, uh, as you can see on the graphic behind me, is a series that we've been calling Jesus Over All. And so basically in this series, our main goal is to examine and explore this really biblical teaching of Jesus's firstness. That Jesus right now is reigning as Lord and King over all, the entire universe, the cosmos. That he has all rule, power, authority, might, and dominion. And so we take this from like home-based passages in this series, like Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And right there in the middle in verse 18 of that passage, we read that Paul desires that we see that in everything Jesus has, he says, the supremacy. If you press that word supremacy from our English back into the original language, it can mean supremacy or it can mean preeminence or check this out. It can also mean firstness. And so basically what we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at this radical idea that Jesus is Lord over all the big ticket stuff. But specifically, we're asking questions as to how does Jesus's firstness work itself out in the nuances, in the details, in the little stuff that we are faced with every single day. And not just that we would decide to put Jesus first in our lives, but that because he is first, what would it look like for a follower of Jesus to see that played out in their life as they follow him? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at a different or examine a different aspect of the thing, uh, of things that we go through in our everyday lives and Jesus's firstness by looking at the notion of our freedoms. So today we are going to be talking about Jesus over my freedoms or over my freedoms. So what would it look like to acknowledge Jesus's firstness in things like our prerogatives or our privileges or we, another synonym for this idea of freedom might be liberties or rights, right? So what are Christ followers who confess Jesus as Lord in their lives, what are they now free to do? And what are, how are they free to act in light of Jesus's firstness? Now, fortunately for us this morning, uh, we are in luck because when it comes to the biblical teaching on the matter, there is no shortage of data and insight that God gives us in his word in the Bible and scripture. There's no short shortage of data or insight that he gives us with regards to our absolute freedom in Christ for those of us that follow Jesus. Uh, actually, the Bible will repeatedly talk about how freedom is one of the absolute blessings and the benefits of coming into a relationship with Jesus. Bar none, the Bible is going to teach that over and over again. But uh, unfortunately, that, uh, what I want to do is, uh, although that's true, unfortunately, I think that leaves us in a place where I think it's best for me to issue a little bit of a caution or we might say that if we too flippantly agree with this idea, oh, the Bible just says that we're free and we're free in Christ. If we too flippantly engage that, it actually could produce a little bit of what I might call a danger. And again, not that the Bible says dangerous things about freedom in its pages, and neither does the Bible vilify freedom. It doesn't say that ultimately freedom is something that's evil. But instead, instead of what the Bible says about freedom, I think we're, we're right to caution ourselves on this subject 
mostly because of what we already bring to the table in terms of our definitions and our base assumptions and understanding of what freedom already is. Guys, I think this happens in a lot of areas of our lives and a lot of areas that the Bible speaks to. Guys, we have, and especially with freedoms, we have some preloaded assumptions already as to what freedom is. And these preloaded assumptions may be a little bit foreign, I think, to what the biblical authors intend as they speak about the reality of freedom in Christ in Scripture. So if I can, let me just pause for a second, and let me see if I can give you an example of what I mean, or maybe to clarify things a little bit for us, as to how we can bring these assumptions to Scripture, and we can kind of get messed up with this a little bit. So um, one thing you need to know about me is I grew up what I would call in two worlds. So my dad was a worship director, a music director at a church from the time I was born. I had people that told me I was born on the altar as a church boy, but uh, that's gross and disgusting, so we're just going to leave that there. But So I grew up in one sense because I just all I ever knew was the church. I was in the church a lot, and my dad was doing things, and it was cool. So I grew up in the church. I was in the church world. But admittedly, right, I grew up as a late 20th century uh, American individual, American citizen. And so uh, in the church world, uh, when I was growing up, I remember about 15 years of age, about 15 years of age, I started to learn how to play the guitar. And I was so struck with like desiring to play all the worship songs that my dad would play, that he would lead in weekend services in church. And I was so dead set on like learning all these songs. And there was one song in particular that I just, I absolutely loved. And I would just like, every time we'd sing it on the weekend, I would just bellow it out from the depths of my soul. And I'd be like, one day. I'm going to get up on that stage and I'm going to rock the riff to this song. And the song's name, for all of you late 90s worship music enthusiasts that are in the room, do you remember this song? Aptly titled for our conversation today, Freedom by Daryl Evans. You know, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Like, and he sang it like he had to go to the bathroom or something like that. <laughs> he totally did that. So this do this song, if you've never heard of it, it was, it was a real toe-tapper. Let me just tell you that much, real toe-tapper, which lets you know that all the youngins today just wouldn't, it would not be acceptable to you. So, but all I want to do is, uh, just to prove my point, or just to kind of illustrate the point that I've been trying to make, uh, that I'll eventually get to, uh, I want to put the lyrics of, this, uh, of the song Freedom onto the screen. Just put these lyrics up here on the screen for a second. So, this is what Daryl Evans wrote in his song Freedom. He said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, I want you to notice this. This phrase, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, is a direct ripoff of a passage in the Bible, like in our English translations. So if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, you will discover that Paul says there that the Lord is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that wherever the spirit of the Lord is in followers of Jesus, right? So cool. Wherever that spirit is, right there, it's freedom. It's freedom. The lyric goes on to say, and there is peace, there is love, there is joy. This is like a certifiable grab bag of biblical ideas that are absolutely connected to the notion of our freedom in Christ, right? We are told in Romans 5 that we have peace with God because of we have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We are free people, that there is love, that because of the Spirit, God's love has been poured into our hearts, right? Because of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. There is joy. There's an exuberance and ex an excitement to love and serve Jesus, and we can do that freely. The lyric goes on, it is for freedom you set us free. He repeats that. Again, this is directly ripped off. If you were to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul literally says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't any longer be conformed to the yoke or the burden of slavery. He says, so we will walk in your freedom, <clears throat> walk in your liberty. If you fast forward a few verses in Galatians 5, you have this idea of Paul imploring the Galatian Christians, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the old nature, of the old sinful nature, of the old flesh. We will dance in your freedom, dance in your liberty, which I think is a veiled reference to the austere regal King David dancing before the Lord in joy, naked, okay? Now, I do not endorse you to do that when we sing songs at the end of the service today. That is not going to happen, okay? So I, I think you guys here, you get the point, right? Right here, what we have in a song like this is a very faithful representation of biblical truth 
about the liberty and the freedom that is absolutely available to followers of Jesus. Absolutely available. But listen, when I was shouting out these lyrics from the deep recesses of my soul when I was 15, here's what I wasn't asking. I wasn't thinking, are these lyrics a thoroughly reasoned and interpretively sound biblical theology of freedom in Christ? I, I do that now, but like back then at 15, I wasn't asking that. Because I'm just going to be really honest with you. What was supplying my definitions of freedom when I would sing this song with so much conviction and passion wasn't the Bible necessarily. It was totally Braveheart. It was totally Braveheart. So guys, I came of age in the 90s, right? I just admitted to you that I love late 90s worship songs, 1995. And for some of you ladies in here, I am so sorry. I just caused you to stumble because Mel Gibson is such a heartthrob, or at least he was back in 1995. I don't know so much about it anymore. But right, so we have the story of Braveheart. William Wallace, right? Most of us know the story. Many of us have seen the movie. Uh, We have William Wallace, who's the Scotsman who amassed an entire army of Scots because they all believed that their rights were being infringed upon, their liberties were being impeded upon by the English. And do you guys remember, you remember the famous line as they're about to go into the last battle when William Wallace is running down the ranks in his horse? What does he say? You can totally recite it with me if you want. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? Listen, all I'm saying is looking back, my default understanding of what it meant to be free in Christ, freedom in Christ, what it was, and maybe more importantly, what it was for, was more Mel Gibson in Braveheart than it was Jesus or Paul or Peter or John or any other author of scripture. And now listen, I confess this morning, it's probably not Braveheart for you that's supplying your preloaded or pre-existing definitions of what freedom is before you even engage the text. But I might just respectfully ask you, just respectfully ask, what is? Or what might be? In other words, guys, what do we already know about freedom before we even approach Scripture? What do we already know? Is freedom, does it mean self-determination? In other words, I determine who I am, my identity. I also determine what is good, right, and true about the goals and the aims and the purposes for my life. And therefore, because I am the authority on those things, I also have the authority to trace a path out how I'm going to get there, to act in a way that is consistent with what I want because I am free. No matter who or what I step over to get there, I'm free. Is it, is it autonomy? Listen, autonomy is literally a word that we use in English that is two Greek words smashed together that literally means self-law. Autos and namas, self-law. To say, I am a law unto myself. I make the rules. And if the rules change on you, it's because I reserve the right and the prerogative to change them whenever I want. Or does freedom for us already mean independence? And what I mean by this is specifically to be dependent on no one or nothing. The right of self-determination, right? What does it look like for us to approach scripture? Is it one of these things or is it something else? And is it possible, is it possible that some of these things, these preconceived notions may cause us to miss something powerful, profound, dynamic, and altogether significant about what true freedom in Christ is that God might want to teach us through his word and he might invite us to conform our lives to. And so with these things in mind, all I want to do for the rest of our time here together today is I want to route us to a passage of scripture that was written by a Jesus ambassador named Paul that I think comes about as close as we could possibly get to a beautiful picture of what freedom in Christ really is. And again, more importantly, what freedom, freedom in Christ is for. And I got to tell you, as we make our way into this passage, what you're not going to find is the word freedom or rights or liberty or prerogative in the passage. You won't find that. This passage is not giving us a dictionary definition of what freedom in Christ is. Instead, I think it's doing something better. This passage doesn't as much verbally define freedom in Christ as it demonstrates and shows what true biblical freedom looks like in practice, how a follower of Jesus might live it as it pertains to our freedom. 
So if you brought your Bibles here with you this morning, uh, I'd like to invite you to this passage right here in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start in 1 through 4. We'll jump around a little bit throughout chapter 14 and through the first seven verses of chapter 15 because this seems to be a self-contained argument right there in that passage for the Apostle Paul. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There are some Bibles under the seats in front of you. Uh, This passage will be found on page 921 in those Bibles. And then lastly, if you don't have a Bible of your own, just take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just take it home with you. Just uh, consider our gift to you and just our desire and our heartbeat is to get God's word into your hands. So now we're gonna make our way in. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse one. This is what the apostle Paul has to say, how he has to instruct the group of early Christ followers that exist in the capital of the Roman empire in Rome. He tells them, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything But another whose faith is weak eats only veggies, which is Seth's translation. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand. Why? For the Lord Jesus is able to make them stand. All right, so as we get our mind wrapped around what Paul is doing in this passage and some of the significance of what he's saying, let's actually dial back and let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin in verse one. First thing that I want you to see here is that Paul addresses his instruction to not one group of followers of Jesus in this ancient city of Rome, but it appears by all means here, from what we see, that he's actually addressing two different maybe factions or subgroups of followers of Jesus in Rome. And you can actually see this right off the bat. Paul first, if we're gonna look at group A, Paul first locks eyes in this letter through Phoebe, who is reading this letter aloud to the church in Rome, to the congregation of the church. And he's looking at group A and he's saying like, you guys, accept who? Accept the one group B, whose faith is weak. And we can confirm that there are two groups of Christ followers in Rome that Paul is addressing in this passage as we continue to work through it. You can hopefully see this in some of the highlights that I've given you here in the different colors. Group A, Paul says, you got to accept the other group. And he says, group A is characterized by a faith that allows the people of that group to eat whatever they want. He says later, the one who eats everything, again, that's group A, later he'll say, everything must not judge the one who does decide to eat everything. But we also have this second group, group B, right? So group B is the one who his faith is weak. Now it says the one who his faith is, whose faith is weak. This is a hypothetical representative of things that would characterize a group of people that would fall under these convictions. He says, group B's faith is weak. Group B's faith is weak because they eat only veggies. Group B is the one who does not eat. Group B is the one who does not eat. So while I think it's important for us to understand that Paul is addressing two groups of followers of Jesus here in Rome, it's probably more important to begin unearthing and mining the significance of what Paul is doing by not just acknowledging that there are two groups, but more importantly, asking the question, how did it come to be that there are two groups of followers of Jesus in the ancient city of Rome, rather than this vision of one unified church that Paul speaks of in all of the rest of his letters. In other words, what is the origin story behind the factionalism that apparently exists in the Roman church? And let me just say this. This is going to require, some of you are going to groan at this, this is going to require a little bit of a history lesson. So I need, somebody said, yeah, woo, my fellow historians in the room, that's what I'm talking about. So I just need to ask your permission, you need to ask your permission to give me about three minutes, it's actually going to be four or five, but I give me three minutes, do I have your permission to give you three minutes to unearth a little bit of the historical background that created some of the tensions in the groups that are in this church? Do I have your permission? Okay, that's awesome, thank you so much, and I heard a go for it down here, it's just super cool. And uh, so some of you are like, dude, you're, 
Seth, you're okay with the Bible? You're, you're, you're all right, but like, you should have been a history professor. And to this I say, what can I say? I miss my calling. I, I really did. I love history. So now let me just say this. Okay, quick origin story. Biblical scholars and historians almost unanimously agree, which is a feat in and of itself, by the way, but biblical scholars and historians almost unanimously agree that the very first people to receive and accept the gospel message in the city of Rome, the message about who Jesus is and what he came to do, the first group of people to receive that in Rome were ethnically Jewish. They were ethnically Jewish. So the first Christians in Rome were Jewish, as represented here by my lovely red circle, on the Italian peninsula. So the first Christians in Rome were Jewish. However, in the late 40s AD, there was a monumental event that occurred that radically changed the socio-religious landscape of the city of Rome and created the seeds of the tensions that would eventually flower into there being two groups in the city of Rome of Christians rather than one that Paul speaks to. And we are told by the Roman historian Suetonius that under the reign of Claudius, all Jewish people in the capital city of Rome were exiled. They were evicted from Rome, every single one of them. Again, Suetonius tells us this. We can also see this corroborated or affirmed and spoken of in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2. So Claudius exiles all the Jews outside of Rome. And so we might ask the question, well, if the Jews were the only ones who would receive the gospel, what happened to the gospel in Rome while they were gone? Like, did it, did it go dormant, or was it just absent there? Now, what's interesting here is actually the gospel message did in Rome, after the Jews were exiled, exactly what Paul said it would do earlier in the letter to the Romans in chapter 1. This is, this is fascinating to me. Paul, in Romans 1.16, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, for it is the power of God unleashed to bring about salvation. And then he says, it is the power of God first to the, anybody know it? Jew, but also and equally next to the Greek, the non-Jew, the Gentile. And this is exactly what happens in the city of Rome. The Jews have to get out of Dodge and yet the gospel in its power comes to Gentile people. They receive Jesus, and as a result, the composition of the church in Rome becomes decidedly Gentile in orientation. Now, after Claudius died, Nero ascends to the throne, and because of various building projects that he needed laborers for, he invites and permits all Jewish people to return to the capital, which then results in controversy and tension and strife. Why? You guys got to get this. There are now two ethnic groups who were both pledging allegiance to Jesus as King and Lord, both putting their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus. But these groups had a rather vicious history of animosity and hostility toward one another. And not only was there historic hostility between these two groups, they just couldn't figure out a way to get along. Each of these groups brought with them different ways that they were convicted to express their allegiance and their loyalty and their faith to Jesus publicly. So not only is there bad blood, each group has differing convictions as to how they ought to live out the story of the gospel and honor Jesus. On the one hand, Jewish Christians adhered to the practices of the Old Testament law, specifically these purity laws that we can find in the Old Testament that were abstaining from non-kosher foods or not eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, also including a meticulous observance of the Sabbath day, one in seven, no work, only cessation, only rest. But in contrast, the Gentile followers of Jesus were claiming freedom precisely from those Old Testament purity law practices because they were arguing we received the spirit of God. We're free. And the spirit of God was the thing that all of that Old Testament stuff was pointing to anyway. We have received the spirit. We are full-fledged covenant members of God's family. We are participating in the life of God. We don't need to express that through not eating meat. And check this out. Scholars largely agree that when Paul uses the phrase 
the weak or the one who is weak in faith in Romans 14 and 15, scholars largely agree that he is pointing to the Jewish Christian population who, again, you got to see this, out of a desire to express heartfelt devotion to Jesus and living out the gospel, were adhering to these Old Testament practices. And interestingly, if we were to fast forward into chapter 15, Paul calls the other group the strong. And most scholars believe that the strong, as what Paul calls them in chapter 15, is the freedom from law group. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is immensely helpful in helping us unpack a little bit what's going on in the tensions and the division that exists here in the Roman church. We see that these two groups of people are quarreling over disputable matters. Guys, I love this. In the original language, this could be translated disputing about disputes. Disputes about disputes. And so Paul is acknowledging that the strong and the weak were, again, disputing about disputes. He goes on to say, what are they disputing about? Well, the weak, again, are abstaining from non-kosher meat. It's just veggies for them, according to verse 2. And again, it appears that they are doing this out of a conviction. They really believe this is the way that they are being called by God's spirit to live out their faith, to not eat meat that would have been sacrificed to some other God or some other pagan idol. And in contrast, again, out of conviction, the Gentile followers of Jesus mostly believe, as Paul wrote in another letter about a similar situation that was going on in Corinth, he says, well, you guys wanna know about eating food sacrificed to idols? Well, here's something that we know. We're free to do it. Because why? Well, an idol isn't really anything. It doesn't exist. Furthermore, we know that there is no God out there but our God. And there is only one God and there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. It's our God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's, our God's, and the fullness therein. We are free to eat meat. And here's what I want you to see. Instead of coming together in unity, the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, as Paul will say in Ephesians 4, that is paramount to what the church is and what it's to be in the world. Instead of coming together in the unity of the spirit, it seems that these two factions would rather point to their rights and their prerogatives and their privileges to reinforce the superiority of their own group, of their own position, of their own status. These guys are quarreling. They're treating each other with contempt. Again, if you were to press this back into the Greek and the original language, treating contempt has with this idea or has this idea of devaluing the humanity of another or reducing another through vitriol and nasty words to a lower status in the kingdom of God. These guys, he says, twice are judging one another. It's as if Paul is saying, these two groups are looking at the righteous judge, the Lord of heaven and earth, who is seated on his judgment throne. Both of them are saying, thank you so much for judging us and justifying us and making us a part of your family. Now, excuse me, God, if you'll get off the judgment seat, we'll take it from here. Guys, put succinctly, this is a community that is making mountains out of molehills. So with every, I'm free to eat meat, and with every, how could you eat meat and dishonor our Lord like that? With every disputable matter that they make into a power play, these guys are chipping away at the unity that the Lord they both proclaim, prayed for in John 17, and shed his blood for at the cross. And Paul says as much. In verse 20, he says, you guys, don't do this. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. This word destroy here literally means to tear down a building brick by brick, stone by stone. Get this. Do you see the gravity of this? All throughout scripture, we are told that when God speaks a word, it will not return void. It will accomplish everything that he purposes. That when God gets to work, you can take it to the bank. It's going to be done. And yet here, do you see this? It's possible for Christ followers to tear it down. That, that the temple of the living God, the place where God himself has decided, decided to dwell, his house, 
The temple that is built according to Ephesians 2 on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and his work. The temple that is itself faith-professing followers of Jesus. We are living stones, 1 Peter 2 will say, in God's spiritual house. This is being torn down. It is being leveled bit by bit over meat, food, over definitions of freedom and rights that were in many respects imported from these guys' former ways of life. Now, let me just pause here for a second. And I want to fast forward to us today a little bit. What I want to do is I want to do some 21st century analysis with some first century math. Because I think for us, and it's, this is easy for me to do, it's easy for us to constantly time warp back to the first century because we have scripture and its historical circumstances, to time warp back and to sit in judgment over these followers of Jesus, being like, look at your squabbles over meat, over food, you idiots. Like, what's wrong with you people? Get it together, man. But let me just ask you this. What if the roles were reversed? What if instead of us teleporting back to them through scripture, what if they had the opportunity to time warp forward and enlightened with all of our own historical circumstances in the church? What would the early church see about us? And Christ followers, what would they say? What would they see? What would they say? What would they say about our politics? What would they say about a scenario where a follower of Jesus who has convictions that might align themselves a little bit more with liberal factions in government would decide to sit deliberately on the other side of an auditorium from a brother or sister in Christ who tends to ascribe to more conservative or Republican values? What would they see? What would they say? about our approach to vaccines. Listen, this, at the height of COVID, and I get it, there's confusion. There's frustration. Nobody knew. But I gotta tell you, was it closer to tearing down the work of God's temple in the church for Christ followers to blast their vitriol toward another follower that Jesus died for and publicize that, parade it out there on social media? What would they see? What would they say about our parenting approaches? What would they see and say about our approaches to our convictions about alcohol consumption or our worship styles? Too much drums. Not enough rock and electric guitar solos. Why do you weirdos put three songs at the end rather than the beginning? It's my fault. I did that. What would they say about our approaches to gun rights? That a follower of Jesus would express a conviction to say, I feel like this is the thing that God wants me to do to protect. And another follower of Jesus could say, no, our, our Lord didn't fight back. He was pacifistic. I'm not saying one is right or the other is wrong. I think the point is, what does it do to destroy the work that Jesus wants to do in the church? Guys, I think this is just as true of us. Romans 14 is just as true of us as it was of them. And if that's the case, we might ask, if Paul were standing up here instead of me, how would he instruct us in a way forward? How would he instruct us in a way forward? And I think if I'm just going to be completely honest, I think Paul would tell us, followers of Jesus, the same thing that he did to the Roman church in the first verse of chapter 14. He would tell us to accept each other, accept each other. Now, this word accept in the original language, it is such a powerful word. Sometimes our English translations cannot bring out the significance of what I think Paul is doing here. Now, this word in the original language is the Greek proslambano, proslambano. 
And uh, if you were to look in a Bible dictionary or a couple Bible lexicons, here are some of the entries that you would get for proslambano. In our English translation, sometimes it's translated as welcome. Sometimes like it is in our passage in the New International Version or our translation as accept, or sometimes it's receive. Now, what's interesting about proslambano, it's actually a mashup of two Greek words. First, the preposition pros, and then the verb lambano. And this is fascinating to me. The word, the preposition pros literally means face-to-face, face-to-face. Not backhand glance, not back-to-back, not sideways look, face-to-face. It is the decision that someone makes to lock eyes with the person that they're addressing. And the word lambano, oh guys, this is so good. Lombano isn't just welcome in terms of what's embroidered on a mat when you walk through someone's front door. Lombano literally means to receive, to bring in, to take in closer in relationship and intimacy. Proslambano is someone looking you in the eye and in light of all your differences and all the complexities that that could elicit, looking in you in the eye, and deciding to take you in to themselves in relationship. One Bible dictionary had proslambano as to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. If I could summarize it, the biblical teaching of proslambano, it is the continual act of relating to others who are radically different than you, and you are treating them like they're your blood kin, like they are your family. And honestly, technical definitions of proslambano just don't cut it. We can't get out, I think, the gravity of what Paul is trying to appeal the Roman church to, and I think us today as well. You can't just analyze proslambano and expect to know its significance. Instead, proslambano is something that you must experience. It's something that you must experience. And so this past week, as I was trying to like go through the Rolodex, wow, I'm old, uh, go through the, like the Rolodex, of my mind, of just different examples in my own life to share with you of moments where I felt like I had been genuinely, I had been genuinely uh, proslambanoed. Um, I was talking to Pastor Tony a little bit about this message and where I was going with it. And uh, he actually let me know of a story about a young man that is a member of our church. He's a part of our church family here at MEC. Um, his name is Raphael Wilson. And uh, he let me know about Raphael's story. And I thought this would just be the best thing that I could do is to share or ask Raphael to share that story with you. And he has agreed to do that. Now, Raphael, this is, uh, if you know him, you'll know him on the, well, you're right up here. You'll know him there. He's, he's a dapper young man, but uh, this will make sense in a second. This is a picture of him when he was four years old. Everybody like, he's a part of your family. Let's dote on our family. But, oh, he was so cute. Like, he was so cute. So uh, here's, here's a little bit of the details. Uh, Raphael was actually born in, and raised in the Philippines. Uh, in some really challenging circumstances, some really difficult conditions that characterized his upbringing. And about age nine or 10, um, his parents, who are also part of the family here in Medina East, Jim and Gina Wilson, they adopted him and his siblings and adopted them and brought them into their family. And so again, my hope is, I just want to read what Raphael was so graciously, which, what he was so gracious to share with me and with all of you. I'd just like to read it to you maybe to hopefully just give us a glimpse of what Paul and Jesus are calling followers of Jesus to in light of this idea of receiving and taking in. Raphael says, my father, and that you are their pride and joy. Instead of feeling loved, I felt like I was worthless and lonely. From my experience, feeling lonely caused me to ask some questions like, what am I doing here? Does anyone care about me? Is there something wrong with me? Am I ever gonna feel the love that Jesus described in the Bible? 
Then around 10 years old, God had a different plan for me. (laughs) Praise God. I was adopted into a loving, caring family who looks very different than he does and who was born and raised in a culture with convictions that are very different from him. They made me feel like I was cherished and like somebody actually noticed me and cared for me. And there were times where it was hard for my family to love me and my siblings because of the way that we treated them. But they knew it was because we had been neglected, abandoned, and rejected by our birth mom. My family was persistent on loving me and my siblings, which made me feel feel like I was worth fighting for. Joining a new family isn't always easy, but I've learned so much about being adopted by my heavenly father from my experience of being adopted by my parents. Guys, this is about as close as you can get to Paul's vision of what true freedom in Christ is. You've got to hear this. True freedom in Jesus is not to do whatever we please. It's a freedom to receive the gift of each other as followers of Jesus, as a family, as a family. And guys, just like every other invitation in Scripture, every other invitation to things like this is grounded in the reality of what Jesus has already done for every one of us. Jesus is the one who has proslambanoed first. That before we get to Romans 14 and 15 with the imperatives of you have to accept each other, you have to receive... Paul has already taught the Roman church something in Romans chapter five. He says, look at this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. Guys, this word in the original language is the exact same term that Paul uses for the weak in Romans 14 and 15. As if to say, this is what we all were when we were still powerless, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God has demonstrated something very clearly in this world, in history. He demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still the weak Christ died for us to bring us into his father's family. Guys, you got to see that each of the two terms or the sets of proslambano terms that we then find in Romans 14 and 15, whatever imperative Paul says you should accept is grounded in the indicative of what Jesus has already done. You should accept the one whose faith is weak. How, Paul? God already has received them. He's already taken them in. And you too. Accept one another. How? Christ has accepted you. Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Guys, I think this is this massive notion of what Jesus wants to do in our midst. Jesus wants to give us this real, this real significant understanding that we are family together. So followers of Jesus in the room, Romans 14 and 15, this morning is locking eyes with us. It's locking eyes with us, especially as it pertains to our freedoms. Guys, as your brother in Christ, as a fellow sibling in Jesus, I want to reassert the reality of your freedom in Jesus. Where the spirit of the Lord is in our midst, there is freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You are free. But Jesus did not free us 
so that we could double down on the old ways of defining freedom that we import into this life with him. Not to double down on self-determination, not to double down on autonomy or independence. Instead, I think this morning, you're invited to see it this way. That freedom in Christ isn't a right to achieve, to achieve something for myself, to gratify something within me. No, freedom isn't a right to achieve. We have the right and the privilege to receive. Guys, you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to do what no group or institution in all of human history could ever do. You can look siblings of Jesus in the eye who are radically different from you, and you can, by Jesus's power, embrace them as family. Because I think this is nothing short of Paul's grand vision for his churches, ignited within him as it was by the risen Lord Jesus of the church that he proclaimed in the gospel. And so this morning, as the band comes up and as we prepare to close things down, I just want to extend an invitation to two different groups of people in this room. Number one, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've never put your faith and entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus, I would implore you that if the spirit is working in you, that Jesus has freedom for you, that Jesus has a new life that he wants to impart to you. And that new life biblically is received by faith. It's pledging your trust that Jesus knows what he's doing, handing your life over. You can do that with a simple, Lord, I'm giving myself to you today. But when you do that, the scripture never describes the life that Jesus gives you as some sort of, like when you come to faith in Jesus, it describes it as some sort of one-on-one transaction that gets you that life and then leaves you to figure out how that life is to be lived now in freedom for the rest of it. Instead, I might implore you today to receive Christ, accept him. But when you do, accept the gift, yes, of a reconciled relationship with your God and Father. But receive all his gifts, that you are also reconciled and placed into a new family, a new family. And so for followers of Jesus in the room, I might just say this to you, encourage you this way, or maybe challenge you this way this morning. As we worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together here in a moment, the one who makes all of this possible, as we do that, I might just ask you to do your own work with the Holy Spirit today. Maybe you could ask the Spirit in prayer, Holy Spirit, are there relationships with other followers of Jesus in my life? That because they're different, because their convictions are different that I have kept at bay. And I've actually worked to increase the divide and the chasm that exists between us. Maybe inviting the Holy Spirit. Maybe there is a name. Maybe there's a relationship. And allow the Spirit not only to convict you, but to give you the power to be able to move and lean into that relationship. As hard as it might be. Why? We're family, because we're family. And then lastly, for all of us, biblical community is the place where this gets lived out. You cannot proslambano yourself. You can't. It requires another that you look in the eye and you decide to receive. So my encouragement is if you're not in a life group, we say this all the time, get in a life group. And I don't even care if you're in a life group, some form of community where you're walking along with other followers of Jesus. And listen, I get it. Some of us in the room, you're like, I tried the life group thing before. And maybe you've made a statement like this. Maybe you've said, I just didn't feel like I fit in any right life group. And may I just humbly submit to you, maybe push back on that a little bit. Maybe you not fitting is exactly the sign and the indicator that that is precisely where the Lord Jesus Christ of the church wants you. To learn the depth of his proslambanoing of you through the challenge and the joy of learning to proslambano someone else who's different from you. And lastly, let me just end 
by appealing to what Paul says at the end of this section in Romans. I think he's saying this to us as well. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. To the Roman Christians, he's talking about the Old Testament. But Paul right here is writing sacred scripture. So now, 2,000 years later, we look to the encouragement and the hope of the scripture. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give y'all, that's plural, the same attitude of mind, yes, between us and God, but to who? Toward each other. That Christ Jesus had, so that with unity, one mind, and one voice, you may truly and genuinely reflect God to the world. You may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you because even as Jesus taught us how to pray, for those of us that follow you who have placed faith in Christ, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in this, that we have access to the relationship because of the blood of Jesus and we can indeed approach you right now in this moment as a family and call you Father. Father, thank you for the plan that you worked in Jesus Christ for us. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to that plan to justify us, not just to independently call us righteous before God, but also to incorporate us into the Father's family. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for pouring the Spirit of the Son into our hearts so that we can not only learn what love of God looks like, but we can learn how that translates into loving one another in ways that honor you truly. And so Jesus, today, no matter where each individual person here is at, Holy Spirit, would you do the work within our hearts to lead us to take the next step to the vision that you gave us in Scripture of what your church is supposed to be? Jesus, help us with this. Wherever we're at, help us to be obedient to you, empowered by you, to take whatever the next step is that you're leading each and every one of us to. Jesus, we trust you with that. You know what you're doing with your church. You know what you're doing. And so we submit ourselves to you. We say it in your name. Amen.